everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Borders, walls, borders, walls. Who belongs? Who doesn't? How we're going to keep some people out, let other people in. This has been dominating the news for a while now, along with the questions of how or if those of us ensconced, in my case Americans, in some homeland, are obligated to provide refuge, to respond to the needs of others, or even be hospitable to the strangers, foreigners, immigrants, take your pick, that find their way into our midst. This public discourse dovetails with recent conversations I've had with some listeners and friends about identity, community, and homeland, the physical place and space that we call home because we live there, have family there, were born there. There are many issues and permutations of this relationship. Sometimes it's a good one. Sometimes you're born where you're born and where you live and your family and your sense of identity and value are all copacetic. But there are more and more of us who lack a homeland and the dimension of identity that provides or inherited one that doesn't fit. As the world gets larger and our bonds are looser, more and more of us are feeling this. The sense of threat from the integrity of what we have being uh, dissolved or that sense of dislocation of not belonging, and the vertigo of floating in space almost. More and more people have or will have the experience of being a refugee, exile, expat, immigrant, transplant, wanderer, new kid on the block, of being homeless and rootless. And for some, the whole life, a whole life is shaped by this state. So many of us long for and need a sense of continuity between home and identity, a sense of belonging to a specific place and community, and it's not easily accomplished. Setting up a household someplace is no guarantee. (laughs) I remember some years ago, I moved to New Mexico. I had always loved the land itself and been fascinated by the culture and the art that was produced. And after about nine months, and some of those were the happiest months of my life, I nevertheless realized, I felt on a very deep level, that I would never belong there. And so I went back to California. Anyone can be from California, quote unquote. You can come from any place and claim California as your home. And I think that that is part of its appeal. Individuals are trying to satisfy the longing, that longing for continuity between place, community, space, identity. And as communities and countries were wrestling with the challenges and fears about strangers and foreigners, so questions of how to define 
who belongs are really important. Where are you from is an increasingly loaded question, and the answer can reveal common bonds or be used to exclude. That now ubiquitous phrase, homeland security, is loaded with meaning and unanswered questions of that type. Now, none of this is new. (laughs) And in the recent conversations, the travail of Odysseus in particular, the famous wanderer in Greek mythology who was exiled from home for 20 years through the actions of the gods, because they instigated the Trojan War, and then Poseidon, whom Odysseus angered, kept him on the road for a while longer. Well, Odysseus has been part of these conversations, and I'm finding it really interesting that the wind is blowing hard in the desert right now as I am recording this. So you may hear that woo-woo-woo in my windows in the background. Yeah, so Odysseus, famous wanderer, blown about, around the Aegean and who knows where, by strong winds, strong winds and storms created by the god Poseidon. Homer's Odyssey, this work, is so influential that the word Odyssey, which originally just meant story of Odysseus, has come to mean journey. The poem is over 2,700 years old, and the times and events to which it refers are even older. At the time that it was written down, they were part of the ancient history of what we now consider to be ancient Greek civilization itself. And you know, one of the important threads that weaves throughout that work and is at the heart even of that story is the question of hospitality and the crucial role that hospitality to strangers must play in a civilized society. If you read the Odyssey, one thing that you notice is that the characters are always eating. There's just this endless series of feasts, and Homer describes them. How you show up, and then they serve the food, and what they serve, and how it's served, and how you take a bath first, and how that is accomplished. And Anyone who was hearing the story at the time understood that practice. They understood the necessity of that. There's a series of feasts because Odysseus is wandering. He's traveling. And at that time, when a stranger arrived, that person was bathed and fed and even offered a fresh set of clothing, if required, and a bed before the host asked the questions, where are you from and who are you? Gifts were even given to create bonds of mutual obligation. So as Odysseus is traveling, each encounter includes this practice, this practice that was understood to be the fundamental to civilization. And it's one of the things that's subject to commentary in the story. For example, when Odysseus and his men end up in the land of the Cyclops, Polyphemus, they wait for the giant to appear with the sense or the expectation that he's going to respect this code of hospitality. But instead, Polyphemus starts to eat his guests. 
And this is a very clear example of his barbarism and the lack of sophistication and correctness in his society. When Odysseus blinds him so that he and his remaining men can escape, Polyphemus cries out in pain, and the other Cyclopses come by. They hear him yelling, but they don't investigate what's going on very far because they don't have a very strong desire to help. And so there again, we have this commentary on community. The Cyclops community is based on the notion that each one kind of keeps to itself, and then they also have a certain indifference to their fellows. And this is meant to show us the serious limitations of such a community. But even more to the point, Odysseus's experiences of hospitality and lack thereof are meant to contrast with what's happening back home in Ithaca, where his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus are compelled through this custom of hospitality to keep feeding the host of suitors who are overstaying their welcome and act like a scourge of locusts, basically, depleting the stores of their absent host, Odysseus. In fact, the poem begins in book one with the prince Telemachus, who is inspired by the goddess Athena to speak sharply to the princes that are gathered in their halls. And what does Telemachus say? He goes into the hall where they are sitting down to yet another fine feast of foods and wines that belong to his father. And he says, okay, you all, tonight we'll eat and you can take your pleasure. But tomorrow I call for an assembly meeting. So this was the community authority at the time, an assembly meeting. I call for an assembly meeting to address the issue of your behavior. And I'm going to tell you straight out that you're going to need to take your feasting elsewhere and eat up your own food because gorging yourself on my absent father's food and wine and destroying his wealth is an abuse, an abuse of the code that demands vengeance. And, he adds, the gods themselves will help me. And that is, in fact, what happens when Odysseus comes back and rids himself of the suitors with the help of the goddess Athena. The code, this code of hospitality, that whoever comes is welcomed, welcomed, provided for, and then questioned, was understood by the Greeks and others at this time to be divinely ordained. And it's built around the recognized vulnerability of both host and guest, of the traveler on the road who's in need of a meal and a bed, and the host who has the need and right to safety and sanctity of home. I think we commonly imagine that our times are somehow finer and gentler. But way back, way back, remember I said this poem is over 2,700 years old and it existed in oral form before that. Way back then, people recognized the benefits of mutual self-interest. They recognized that 
safety depends on all being safe. And this is honest awareness of fact, isn't it? Isn't it the case that if one person isn't safe, if one person is oppressed, if one person is victimized, that the potential then is present for any one of us to suffer that fate? It's not merely a cultural nicety. How can human beings get along and have lasting security, bodily safety, and sustenance if it's not freely extended to all of them? There's a sense in Homer's Odyssey and in this ancient practice of hospitality, an awareness that place and identity matter, that homeland is important, and that it can also be lost, misplaced, or suspended, and that actions are another important piece of identity. We are what we do, and we know each other through our actions. Trust and adherence to the code is its own reward. It's a reward of character, being identified as a person of character. And this is recognized and supported by the gods, by the governing forces in human life. You know, in the ancient days, eating a meal together had a consciously perceived sacredness that I would love to see us regain. Eating a meal together created a bond between people at the table and a bond that extended beyond that immediate moment that included the gods and the ancestors. Everything living and dead linked in an ordered universe arising from the dynamic interplay of life and death. In some myths and stories, this bond, this linkage and the reward is clearly the message. For example, in Ovid, Ovid's Metamorphosis, he tells the story of Bassus and Philemon. Now, Ovid was a Roman who popularized many Greek myths in his book, The Metamorphosis, and he gave them kind of a Roman twist. I mean, he was coming along later, and he also injected his own personality into them a little bit. And in book eight, he tells this particular tale. And I want to read the passage from Alan Mandelbaum's translation because I think it's beautiful and because I want you to hear the accumulation of details that surround the simple acts in this story. They speak to the importance of what's easily forgotten or trivialized in our times, these times where we're beaten up and dominated by titanic rhetoric and abstractions. It's abstractions that flood our public debates and obscure the details of lived experience. I hear the politicians talk about the millions of people who will be impacted by this or that decision. And in a funny way, it enables us to forget that each one of those millions is an individual with a face and a heart and a life. So here's Ovid from Book 8, The Tale of Bossus and Philemon. Among the Phrygian hills, there stands an oak tree together with a linden, and round them both a low wall runs. I have seen this spot, says the storyteller, 
for I was sent there by my father. And close to that spot, there is a stagnant marsh, a place that once welcomed crops and men. It now has water birds, loons, and marsh hens. Jupiter, that is Zeus in the Greek, came there in mortal disguise. And with his father, though he'd set aside his wings, came Mercury, that is Hermes in the Greek, Atlas's grandson, with a caduceus, his wondrous wand. They asked for shelter at a thousand doors, and at a thousand they were shunned and spurned. But one house took them in, a modest place. Its roof was thatched with simple straw and reeds, and in their hut there lived an aged woman, the pious Bossus, and with her Philemon, as old as she was. They were wed when young within that hut, and there they had grown old, serene in poverty, not seeing it as taint or tarnish, something to be hid. You need not ask who was the master, who the servant in that house, for only two lived there. That pair commanded, and they served. And when the two gods from the sky arrived, they stooped on entering. The door was low. The old man, setting out a bench on which his bosses had been quick to spread rough cloth, invited them to sit, to rest their limbs. The coals of yesterday were covered by warm ashes. Bosses, raking these aside, now fanned the coals and added leaves, dry bark. Then, on her hands and knees, with all the breath she had, she breathed new life into the hearth. That done, from underneath the roof, she took wood splits and dried out twigs and broke them up into still smaller pieces, small enough to set beneath a little copper pot. She took the greens Philemon had brought in from their well-watered garden, and she cleaned a cabbage, lopping off the outer leaves. Meanwhile, her husband used a two-tined pole to spear a chin of smoked ham hanging from a rafter's blackened beams, and slicing off a modest portion of that well-kept pork, he put it in the boiling pot to cook. And they beguiled their waiting time with talk and readying the table. Bossus shook a cushion made of marsh grass, placing it upon the dining couch with feet and frame of willow wood. And over this they draped the cover the old couple kept for feast days. But even this was worn and plain, a cloth quite in accord with such a willow couch. The gods recline. Old Bossus, with her skirts tucked up and hands that shook a bit, sets out the table. One of its three legs was short, but then the piece of broken pottery she jams beneath the shorter leg adjusts the slant at last its level. And with green mint leaves, old Bossus wipes the table clean. She offers dappled olives, green and black. The berries Frank Minerva, that is Athena, cherishes. Wild cherries, pickled fruits of autumn, kept in lees of wine, endive and radishes and curdled cheese, and taken from warm ashes, some very delicately roasted eggs. All of this is served on earthen dishes. That same rich ware is matched by the embossed wine bowl they have set out with beechwood cups, whose cracks and holes were patched with yellow wax. 
and soon the steaming ham and cabbage come off the hearth, and wine of no great age again is served, then set aside. The space is needed for the final course. Dried dates and nuts and figs and plums and purple grapes straight from the vine, and fragrant apples heaped in ample baskets, and the centerpiece, a comb of honey that is pale and clear. And to all these are added liveliness, good cheer, kind faces, willing, generous. Meanwhile, the aged couple noticed this. The wine bowl, which had served so many cups, seemed to replenish its own self, fill up again and again with welling wine. Dismayed, this sight was unbelievable. Afraid, both Bossus and the old Philemon prayed with hands palms up to heaven, begging pardon for food so meager and so scant a welcome. Then they got set to kill their only goose, the guardian of their poor patch of land. They planned to serve it to their godly guests. But that was no slow goose. <laughs> he tired out the aged couple as he flapped about. He slipped the chase until at last, it seems, he landed safely near the deities. And then the gods told Bossus and Philemon that they were not to kill the goose. They said, We're gods indeed. Your sacrilegious neighbors have earned the punishment they will receive. But you'll be saved from that catastrophe. And now, come leave your hut and go with us to the tall peak that you can see far off. They both obeyed, and taking up their staffs, they made their slow way up the mountain path. When they were just a bowshot from the top, they turned around and saw below a swamp that covered everything but their own hut. And while the aged couple watched, amazed and weeping for their neighbor's fate, that hut in which they'd lived so long, a home that was small even in their eyes, became a temple. In place of those forked poles that had sustained the roof, now marble columns stood. The straw now gleamed with gold. Carved panels graced the doors, and on the ground there stretched a marble floor. Then Jove, the son of Saturn, said with calm, you just old man and you his worthy wife, tell me what you desire most. Philemon spoke briefly to his bosses, then declared unto the gods their choice, the wish they shared. We want to be your priests, to guard your shrine. And since for such long years we too have lived in harmony, we pray that the hour in which one dies may also take the other, that I may never see her sepulchre, and she may never have to bury me. Their wish was honored, and as long as life was granted them, they served within the shrine. And then they were allowed to die together at the same time. When the stranger appears at our door, we don't know who we're dealing with. That stranger could be a god. That's one thing the story tells us. But it also raises the questions, doesn't it, of who is rich and what are riches? And what is the connection between giving and receiving? The answers to those questions have been handed down to us in many stories, stories that are so old and worn that they almost seem cliched. But I'm finding a lot of usefulness for them right now in contemplating these questions for myself. These two stories, The Odyssey and 
the story of Bossus and Philemon from Ovid, are precursors to one that shaped my consciousness as a child, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan, told by Jesus in the book of Luke. In that parable, Jesus is talking to people, and a man, he's a lawyer, I think, asks Jesus, what do I need to do to get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus turns the question back on the man. He says, well, what do you think? And the man says, well, I think that you should love God completely with heart and mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. That's right, says Jesus. But then the man asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus then tells the story. The parable, The Good Samaritan, gets its name from one of the characters, the Samaritan. And a Samaritan was a person from Samaria, which was a region in the Middle East at the time. Now, Samaritans were generally considered by the Jews to be inferior because many of them were mixed, part Jew and part Gentile. And there was antagonism between these two groups. And this is an important detail because the man on the road, when the story begins, is coming home from Jerusalem. That is, he was a Jew. In the story, a man is traveling with his donkey down a dangerous, steep part of road on his way home from Jerusalem. The area was well known for its robbers, and he's accosted, robbed, badly beaten, and left on the side of the road for dead. Sometime later, a priest comes by, also on his way home from the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees the man and crosses over to the other side of the road without stopping. Then a Levite came by, and a Levite was like a lay minister, not the highest office like a priest, but someone actively engaged in the temple. And he also saw the man and crossed over to the other side and kept on walking. And then a Samaritan came along, and he saw the man, went over to him, cleaned and bandaged his wounds, and put him onto his donkey. He then took the beaten stranger down the road to an inn, where he gave the innkeeper instructions to take care for him, and money to provide for the man's needs. I will come back for him, the Samaritan told the innkeeper, and will repay you whatever amount more you might spend. In this parable, we have three attitudes. The robbers who act from the place that's what's yours is mine and I'll take it. The priest and the Levite who act from the place of what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. And the Samaritan who acts from the place what's mine is yours and I'll share it with you. The lawyer asks what he needs to do to get into the kingdom of God and Jesus tells him, what someone who is already inside that kingdom looks like. Because the lawyer's question is essentially, how much do I have to love? And in through this story, Jesus shows us, no, you got to be love. You've got to be love. And love asks, what can I do? As the days go by and we deepen our resistance to the mentality that excludes and builds walls, we got to put real feeling and action into that motto that love is stronger than hate, that love is all. That involves recognizing the divine in everyone, and this is a cross-cultural understanding. It's the meaning of the word namaste. The divine in me recognizes the divine in you. 
And it's the deeper truth in our codes of hospitality, hospitality as a spiritual practice. In the last couple programs, I've, I've mentioned vulnerability. Vulnerability as being a central piece of our shared human condition and the need to embrace that. Because it seems to me that it's our fantasies of might and inviolability that create that arrogance, the arrogance to close the door, which covers up a greater insecurity, an insecurity that becomes a crippling fear if we don't own it. But if we own our frailty and our vulnerability, if we recognize that as being part of the human experience, it can be a source of real strength. And I wonder if we embrace that, if it will allow us to open up to the stranger, to put our fear aside and try compassion. Joseph Campbell often said that the challenge for us right now is to just move beyond tribal mythologies, mythologies that belong to people identified in the old way with homeland. And he thought that we would need to find an image, an image that unites us as a race, as a species, without erasing our individuality. He thought it might be the picture of planet Earth that was taken by the astronauts on that Apollo mission. He thought that maybe if we could see ourselves all as inhabitants of that beautiful blue planet, we might be able to evolve a mythology of community where we could all thrive. That, I think, would provide us with real homeland security. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth and the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And if you're finding value in Myth and the Mojave, please join the community on Bandcamp. It's only $5 a month. And for that $5 a month, you will make it possible for me to keep doing this for me to keep creating these programs and you will have unlimited access to all the programs archived there as well as free downloads of everything new that I create. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time and until then happy myth making and keep the mystery in your life alive. <laughs>